Uh, Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hosea chapter 1. And I will uh, talk a little bit while you figure out where Hosea is in your Bible. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, there's Hosea. Um, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. If you get into those, you know to go the other way. Uh, It's kind of a a section of uh, the Old Testament that um, many of us perhaps uh, will skip, miss out on uh, somewhere along the way. And the truth is, I guess at some level, uh, you read the first two verses and you're uh, sort of inclined to go ahead and skip it anyway. Right. You read the first two verses and you go, that sounds weird. I'm going to Joel to see if that's any better. Um, and uh, yet uh, that is where we are this morning as we begin a new series uh, in the prophet Hosea. Uh, if you would uh, and are able, would you please stand as we read the first two verses of Hosea 1? <laughs> By the time you stand up, we could have been finished already. Uh, hear God's word. And let me just uh, sort of remind you now that you're standing um, of, of the song we just sang, um, which, which asks God to speak in and through his word and the preaching of his word. Uh, and, and so the reality is we come uh, to hear God speak to us. Hosea chapter one, verses one and two, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that as we come to this, your word, um, inspired, very words inspired by you, preserved by you, kept for us. Would you open our minds to understand, our, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, our hearts to believe and embrace, and our lives to be conformed uh, to it. For we pray that you would be at work in and through it. Through Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I don't want to oversimplify a um, a potential philosophical debate between two people who never talked to each other, um, but I'm going to. Uh, I'm convinced that Charles Dickens and Billy Joel uh, have had a bit of a row. They've had a, a bit of a, a conflict in their uh, worldview, their perception of the world in which we or they have lived. Uh, because if you recall, Charles Dickens begins by recognizing, in one place at least, that it is both the best of times and the worst of times. He sort of sees the fact that there's this great delight, pleasure, wealth, peace, Whatever in one setting and at the same time 
the exact opposite. It is both the best of times and it is the worst of times. Billy Joel, I think, takes exception with Mr. Dickens because he can just, in, in, in one sort of, one song, examine 40 years of history and, and almost sound like he's saying, don't blame me, we didn't start the fire. It was always burning. As long as the world's been turning. We didn't start. And it almost sounds like he's like, look, I know it's bad. It's a fire out there. There's all this chaos. There's all this conflict. There's all this trouble. We didn't start it. That song, of course, grows out of a conversation he had with Sean Lennon and one of Sean's friends. And his friend was complaining. It's so hard to be a 21-year-old in the 80s. And Billy said, it's no different. In fact, let me prove it to you. Let me sort of recount for you. That's the birth of we didn't start the fire. And just a, a litany of all the, the difficult. And not everything in the song is bad. But yet he attributes all of it to, to fire, to danger, to bad, to, to scary. He uses that kind of, of language. And so, at some level, there's a, a question that you and I should ask of Scripture, and that is, what do you say to somebody who looks at the world around him and goes, well, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. It's both. There's, there's lots of reason for comfort and hope and, and rejoicing. There's also lots of reason to be frustrated and concerned and perhaps even afraid. What's the message for what's the message for someone who looks at the world and goes, this place is a mess. I didn't start it. And it almost sounds like I can't even fix it. There's nothing I can do for it. What's the what's the message? What's what do you give to that world? Because that's Hosea's world. Hosea actually lives in both the best of times and the worst of times. In fact, men, if you were coming last fall, as we were working through First and Second Kings, you read those names and, and you're like, wait a minute, we were doing that on Wednesday night. We've talked about all these people. You'll recognize times of peace, but times of conflict. Times of, of fear and danger, but and at the same time, times of, of, of hope and comfort and, and of peace. What do you say to the church today, which both hopes and fears? You, you, you're just saying it's, it hasn't been that long. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee. Tonight, It hasn't been that long. What do you say to the church that brings both its hopes and its fears? Because the reality is we have hope because of the power of the gospel. We have hope uh, because we know that God is at work. We have hope because we know that Christ redeems. We have fear because quite honestly, okay, maybe I'm influenced by recent travels. 
But you look over your shoulder and you see a world in which the Reformation Day is still a national holiday. And yet is foreign to the people itself. You're looking over your shoulder thinking, I'm watching as as Christianity becomes a a religion, a, a philosophy, a worldview pushed more and more to the periphery. And we can see a world where not that long ago it was central to, um, to life and is absent now. What do you say to people who didn't start the fire but who watch it continue to burn? What do you say to the church who's living in both the best of times and the worst of times? First, I want to... Uh, To show you at least Hosea the prophet. Uh, Notice we are not told very much about Hosea. At least not here. In fact, for that matter, men, again, I'm going to keep reminding you of our Wednesday night discussions. Because this is right in the midst of where we were not that long ago. But if you recall... um, you can sort of think back to first and second Kings and, and not remember Hosea's name because he's really not there. He doesn't, he doesn't show up. He's not, he's not mentioned there in Kings. All we know is that he is the son of Beery, probably, but eerie in Hebrew, something that sounds awkward in English. And you notice we're given a list of Kings Uh, Most of them are uh, the kings in Judah, uh, four names in Judah, the southern kingdom, Uh, Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam the second, not the first one, uh, in the northern kingdom in Israel. So we're after the division, we're after that separation between north and south, we're after Saul and David and Solomon, and then it splits and Jeroboam and Rehoboam take uh, each get parts of of what was the United Kingdom. It's separated now. And these kings are listed, really. We read right through sort of 2 Kings 14, 15, 16, right in that section of, of 2 Kings. But you'll also notice that there are names missing. Uh, There are other kings in the north besides just Jeroboam. Hosea is a prophet for about 50 or so years. He overlaps. If he overlaps with those four kings in the south, he overlaps with more than just Jeroboam II in the north. But it seems that he thinks the rest of the guys that come after Jeroboam are all pretenders. Guys, you remember this discussion. Murderer after murderer after usurper. Like literally a guy that has no claim to the throne whatsoever kills the guy on the throne just so he can become king. And the next thing you know in the next paragraph in 2 Kings, that guy's being killed by somebody else to come along and want the throne. And so it seems that Hosea, or at least the the writer of Hosea is... Recounting merely sort of the the legitimate kings, if you will, the four in Judah in the south and Jeroboam in the north. I 
And you see that we're in the middle of the 8th century BC, in the middle of the 700s. Uh, Assyria will destroy Israel, the northern kingdom, in 722. So we're in those kind of 50 years leading up to that time. Israel, of course, isn't going to be destroyed simply because of what Jeroboam does. Although he certainly contributes. He didn't start the fire. But he's certainly not doing anything to put out the fire. He's inherited a, a burning world, a burning Israel, uh, and Israel headed straight for destruction. He has inherited, and yet he continues in that path himself. There's this, this national tension hanging over those northern tribes, that northern kingdom. Because you know the prophet has said this is going to come to an end. We are going to be destroyed. You watch as neighboring nations grow in power. They're sending little sorties into Israel and causing trouble here and there. At the moment there's peace because Assyria and Syria are kind of doing their thing. They're building their army. They're not bothering you right now. So there's that sense of peace. There's that, that lull, that calm before the storm sort of feeling the best of times. The absence of conflict. And Israel can say, look, see how we're at peace, we're at ease. And yet the rulers know, the people know, that danger hangs just off to their north and east, just in their near future. Jeroboam doesn't start the fire, but it's, it's been burning for years, but he still has to deal with the, the consequences and the effects of those who have gone before him as well as his own decisions and actions. And so it's in that world, it's to that world, that Hosea is called by God to go and serve as a prophet. Hosea, you are going to take my word to my people. That's the function of a prophet, right? There's those three offices that we see all fulfilled in Christ, but split among people in the old covenant. Prophet, priest, and king. And generally, typically, not always, they are entirely different lines of people. There's a king whose job it is to rule over, to govern God's people as God would govern them. The priest who intercede for the people to God, the prophet who brings God's message of hope or judgment, whatever the case may be, from God to the people. In fact, notice verse 1. These words aren't Hosea's words. Hosea didn't come up with this. I hesitate to do this in the pulpit. But I, if I could get inside, if I could be honest and be inside of our minds for just a second, right? 
If I can, if I can for just a moment get inside your head as you are reading, doing your read through the, okay, it's January. We're still early. You're in Genesis. You haven't quit yet, right? You're still doing the read through the Bible. You haven't gotten to Leviticus. You're still pressing on. If you get to Hosea, I'm, the thought in your head, it wasn't Hosea's idea. Hosea is not the one that came up with this insane, if we're honest, idea to go and marry an unfaithful woman. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's word to his people. This is God's word to us. This is God's word to the church. And so Hosea is bringing this message to to the saints, to God's people, to the the old covenant church, which is Israel, Judah, God's people. This isn't political advice from, you know, Jeroboam's secretary of state, right? This isn't the attorney general walking into the president's office saying, you know what, Jeroboam, here's what here's what here's what's going to happen. Or Hosea, here's what we're going to tell you what to do. This is this is God's God is speaking here. This has implications for us. I mean, already we're prepared to make an application from just the first five, one, two, three, four, five words of Hosea one. It has implications for the the ministry of grace covenant. This has implications for the book, even if it is on an eye device you're holding in your hand. God speaks to us. We firmly believe that this is God's word, that this is this isn't man's creation. This isn't a bunch of people got together and wrote some stuff. This isn't a bunch of people wrote some stuff without getting together, separated by hundreds or thousands of years. This is God's word to his people. God has condescended to us in language that you and I can read and understand. Okay, you go, well, I can't read Greek. Well, I went to seminary. I can't either. Right? I I can struggle through here and there. I can struggle through Hebrew here and there. That's right to left and, and letters you've never... At least Greek... We see those on the college campus. Like we see those letters somewhere. Hebrew, ah, that's a squiggly and you're right in the wrong direction. But it's, it's, it's easy enough to translate into English. Right? It's not, it's, not like, it's not like the English version we have has taken some long circuitous route that we just translate from Greek into English. It's, it's easy to do. In fact, turn, turn to chapter 4. And, and notice verse 1 of chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. Hosea steps out to the people of God and says, This is God's message to you. This isn't me. I'm not making this up. I'm not writing. This isn't my idea, Israel. This is God's word to you. It's interesting, though. You remember the old E.F. Hutton commercials? When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. The classroom with 
the girl who's you know probably second grade and, and it, she looks too old to be doing the alphabet. She looks like she's probably third or fourth grade, but anyway, say the alphabet and Susie, whatever her name was, A, B, C, D, E, F, E, F, E, F Hutton. And the whole classroom goes and to listen. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. It's a shame that E.F. Hutton, e. Hutton gets better attention than the God of the universe. When he talks, when he speaks, people should listen. And so at some level, already there's judgment for us and there's judgment for Israel because they don't listen. They haven't been and they won't. And how often do we simply disdain and discredit the message that God gives to his people? Hosea the prophet. Secondly, Hosea the prophecy. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. What if you got a picture and a thousand words? What if you had both? Because that's Hosea. Hosea's message isn't merely verbal, but it's actually going to be a bit of a play. He's going to be on stage for Israel, for you and me, and he's going to live out the very message that he is called to proclaim. Not only will he speak God's word to his people but he'll also act out, um, not merely as an actor, but actually live it out. It will actually be woven into the fabric of his life. His, his message will end up being heard and seen. You'll get to watch God's message in and through Hosea, even as you hear it from him. Notice in verse 2, Hosea is commanded to marry a wife of whoredom. And to have children of whoredom. And already you're asking questions. Already. And, and there are questions. And, and truth is there are details and specifics that sometimes could be this, could be that. We don't have time to, to answer all those questions today. But the image is clear. God calls Hosea to a marriage with a woman who is and who will be unfaithful. That's his calling. That's his command. Now look, I don't have to do this, and I certainly don't have to do this in this room. But just in case I have to do this in this room, and just in case somebody listens online somewhere down the road, that does not mean this is everyone's calling. Right? Don't... Don't take Hosea, a, a prescriptive command to Hosea to be prescriptive for anybody in this world. That, that's not the case. It's descriptive for us, even if it was prescriptive for him. Right? I mean, the rest of Scripture tells us that divorce is, is legal in God's eyes in, the, in, the, in cases of Adultery and abandonment. So don't let that and this end up in some sort of conflict that you go, oh, well, 
you know, if ever a spouse, you know, you got to let the rest of Scripture interpret this for you. But there are two questions that I think we need to ask. There are two questions that are important for us right here in this moment from this text. And the first is this. Why on earth would God command Hosea to this? Why on earth would God call Hosea to marry a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom? Thankfully, the answer is right there in the verse. You get you, you ask that question, which I think is a is a pretty easy question to ask. I mean, I think that's a standard first question. I think you get to that comma in the middle of verse two or the sec- two thirds of verse two, and you go, "Why on earth?" I think that's a reasonable question because the very next phrase gives you the answer. The answer is. Because God's people, Israel, is itself an unfaithful wife. God has a wife who is unfaithful. Christ, as the bridegroom, has taken to himself a spouse, a wife, who is herself unfaithful that's the image that's the notice that little connecting you see this is why we say things we use fancy you want to learn a fancy seminary term right every every so often you need to learn fancy seminary words that you'll forget when you walk out of here and that's okay right but if you'll humor me for a second, pretend that maybe two of you, three of you will remember this, I don't know, tomorrow. Verbal plenary inspiration. What we mean is that God inspires the words and each and every word. All the words and each and every word. There's a word in that verse that connects Hosea's action with Israel. And it's the simple little connecting word for. Hosea, take for yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom. For. And and then it goes to Israel. The land commits great whoredom by forsaking God. It's one of those times when if you just look at the words, you don't know why land and and land whoredom and and forsaking God connect. What does that have to do with Hosea's marriage? At the word level, you're thinking, "What? Well, I don't see the connection." But the reality is, we can't not see the connection. It's so plainly obvious that Hosea's marriage is going to be a a a picture, a model for Israel of the relationship that God has with his people. You're going to take for yourself a wife of whoredom. Why? Because Israel herself is a whore. Israel herself has forsaken me. Israel, my wife, is cheating 
on me. That, that's the language of the end of verse 2. We know that throughout Scripture, that picture of marriage is a, is a uh, that marriage is used as a, a picture of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And that's a primary, not the only, but a primary image throughout the book of Hosea. Jeroboam II didn't start the fire, right? But he's worshiping Baal. And, and kings and rulers and leaders before him have worshiped Baal. Have said basically, thank you God for getting me out of Egypt. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for giving us this land and, you know, flowing with milk and honey. Uh, thank you for the fact that we harvested crops we didn't plan. Uh, thank you for the fact that we won battles we shouldn't have won. We were outnumbered. We were outmilitaried. We didn't even have swords in our hands. Right? I've got, I've got a, a pot and a, and a torch and a trumpet. And my sword is still in my... like. And yet the land is theirs. Thank you for all that. But I'm going to go and give myself to this, this idol, this false god over here. Go. You need something to do Sunday afternoon? Read First and Second Kings. I mean, just, just start in First Kings 18 and watch as Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal. Right? Scream louder. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's in the bath, literally. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he can't hear you. Israel has been worshiping idols, has been worshiping false gods for ages. And that is evidence of her whoredom. That is the, the means of her whoredom. Israel has, as the bride of Christ, as God's beloved wife, persistently and consistently given herself to other would-be husbands. It's already judgment against Israel. Hosea is going to live out this life of, um, of God's message before the people. There's a second question we need to ask of these two verses. Not just why on earth would God call him to do this. But second, why does this make us so grossed out? Because, right, your visceral reaction against that, that command in verse 2 is, that's disgusting. That's unfair. That's mean. That's, that can't possibly be. Seriously, God? Like, who would... It's so degrading and debate. I'm like, we literally think to ourselves, this is a repulsive command. We're repulsed by the idea that Hosea would have to spend his married days with someone who may or may not be home when he gets home, who may or may not come home at night, whose kids may or may not be his, and who you don't know where she is or when she's coming back. If she's coming back, you, you have no idea. That's... What he's been called to. But maybe there's a second question. Maybe there's a different second question. 
Maybe the question would be better asked not, why does that gross us out so much? Maybe a better question would be, why doesn't it gross us out more? Why aren't, why aren't we more disgusted by this command? Because if this is a picture of God's relationship with his bride, the church, if this is a picture of God's relationship with Israel, if this is a, the picture of the attitude of God's people towards their redeemer, towards their deliverer, towards the, the one who has been eternally focused on his bride, on loving his bride, the church. If this is judgment on God's people, shouldn't we be more disgusted? Shouldn't it trouble us more? I mean, how can we grow in our love for God? How can, how can the church grow in its dedication and commitment to her husband, to her spouse? How can we as a church, how can God's people be single-mindedly devoted to God as her husband. It is a, um, I, now that I'm about to say this, I feel like I've said this before. In the, in the 1950s, there's a song by the Flamingos. Uh, turns out uh, it probably was written in the 30s. It had been sung by um, um, somebody else in the 40s. And somebody else, Billy Holiday, earlier in the 50s. But it's the Flamingos version that you know, I assume. It's the Flamingos version I know. So it's the Flamingos version that you should know. I assume. I only have eyes for you. God only has eyes for his bride, the church. God's loving, devoted attention has been given from eternity past to you, to his bride, to the church. The Bible shows us, and it's clear in Hosea, that God only has eyes for his church and he will pursue her to the ends of the earth. He will pursue her to the point of redeeming her from adultery and abandonment and unfaithfulness. He's so committed to having a people for himself that he will chase her to the ends of the earth. And he's committed to that bride being pure at the last day. He will bring her home. To be with him. But there's, there's a glimmer of hope in this passage. I don't know if you noticed it or not. Um, but it's in uh, the, the last word of that first phrase in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. His name means he has delivered. Or he has rescued. And in that it's actually a lot like Joshua. God saves, which is actually a lot like Jesus. Jesus' name is just a variation of Joshua. The Lord saves. And, and you read, he has delivered, 
in the past tense and you think, but this is a message of judgment and Assyria is coming. And in 722, Israel will be no more. And yet, so certain is God's devotion to his spouse that Hosea can have a name that talks about God having already delivered. There's a glimmer of hope because even in Hosea's name, there's a a promise, a, a hope that there is rescue, that there is deliverance. That's the message you need. When you look around and see the fire that you didn't start and you want to blame all kinds of people, that's the message we need in the face of that fire. That's the message we need in the middle of the best of times and the worst of times. Let me make just two applications from this passage. The first is this. This serves as a warning to the church today. Uh, The more the church gives herself to the thoughts and attitudes and philosophies and beliefs of the world rather than to God as revealed in his word, then she is in danger of becoming a wife of whoredom. She's giving herself to the, to the vain philosophies of the world around us, serving idols, serving false gods rather than the one true God. It's a call to the people of God to devote themselves wholeheartedly to him. But there's a second application. And it's that this actually serves as a reminder that we don't do that. We don't give ourselves, we don't devote ourselves wholeheartedly to him. So what? Then what? What's, where's the hope? Where's the comfort? It's in the fact that God only has eyes for his bride. So much so that he sacrificed his son to redeem her. He sacrificed, he shed his own son's blood so that she might be made righteous and have her sin and misery, as we confessed in our affirmation of faith just a few minutes ago, forgiven. He's more committed to that marriage than we are. He's more committed to the church's purity and holiness and devotion than the church is. And what that means is he has delivered He has rescued you. He has rescued his people. He delivers us from our worship of idols and calls us to himself. May he be honored and glorified. Having delivered, having rescued, it means that he will certainly preserve. May he do that for Grace Covenant even today. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we confess that our minds, our eyes wander. Uh, We look at, uh, we gaze often at uh, the the trappings of the world around us and think, I wonder what it would be like to pursue that just for a moment. Father, your church, your bride, and your people individually, we are... Uh, prone to wander. We are wayward people. Would you restore us? Would you pursue us? Would you restore us and, and preserve us to the last day? And would you grow in us a desire to only have eyes for you, 
even as you only have eyes for us. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior and our King. Amen.